What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me here at The Real Rescue, powered by Vertical Helicast. This episode specifically is brought to us by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter, hoist, and winch provider. Now, coming up next in this part one episode, we get to a talk to a guy who's a critical care flight paramedic. He's also an athlete running marathons, Ironmans, and ultras. In addition to that, he's an author. He wrote the book, Running Wild. It's all about him running a marathon on every continent in the world. It's amazing. So not only do we get rescue stories, we get running and his world adventure stories and why, a little bit of Boston Marathon bombing, and then everything else in between. It's a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. So please welcome Mr. Bobby O'Donnell. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. I am psyched with this because I got a fellow mass hole with me. <laughs> yeah. You know Go what I'm like. <laughs> Go socks. They're wicked awesome. Just saying. <laughs> wicked good guy. <laughs> uh, did you see the socks game last night? It was awesome. They do it. Hit a home right over the monster. It was crazy. Oh, it was wicked pisser. <laughs> Man, and then we were drinking the beers later, and it was just off the off the charts. <laughs> all nice, all nice. Oh, that's hilarious. Anyway, sorry, sorry, I digress. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a critical care paramedic working with Boston Med Flight. He's also an author. Please welcome Mr. Bobby O'Donnell. What's up, Bobby? Jason, thanks for having me, man. You dra you dragged that Boston accent out of my past. It just shook me. <laughs> What just happened? What just happened? I don't know what just happened. <laughs> oh, oh, man, years you know of trying what? to get rid of it. It's now brought back into the forefront of my mind. <laughs> I don't understand. I'm trying to sound smarter than I really am. Nah, you're wicked smart. It's totally fine. I love oh, it when gosh. you go into Boston, though, and the, the trauma surgeons sound like that. They're using all these crazy words without accent. Sounds so misplaced. <laughs> yeah, tip your head just a little bit. You're like, what did you just say? <laughs> you know, the residents oh are God. all screwed up because of it, too. So. <laughs> yeah, because anybody that goes into like any of the hospitals, there, especially from out of town, they go in, they're like, oh, yeah, what? What did you just say? You know, <laughs> I mean, great. I granted, like, you know, the Boston hospitals, maybe like one percent of them are actually from Massachusetts. Or we're lucky. We got docs from all over the world, you know, but. Yeah. <laughs> I think what makes it funny for me is when I go like travel down south, especially down in like deep Louisiana, and I start talking New England and, and they're like, I don't know what you're saying. And then I look at them and they're like, hey boy, mama, mama. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> you're like the guy in the water boy. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I freaking love it. Gosh, so funny, so funny. All right, so now that we've gone on a total tangent, Bobby, thanks so much for coming on, man. I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Uh, so this is going to be fun because you and I connected through 
a fellow instructor of ours. So you and I had the opportunity to go through. Legend. Yeah, NMETC. That was our paramedic school. Uh, uh, actually, shoot, I don't even remember what it actually stands for. I just remember that. Do you remember what it stands for? Yeah, it's uh, National Medical Education and Training Center, which well, which is super long when you have to like write it all the way out on applications. So I got a you know <laughs> right? bone to pick with Brad on that one. <laughs> That's what I remember. NMETC. So much easier. <laughs> That's it. So. Brad you could have just the, done like good paramedic school. It would have been way easier. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> wicked. Jay should have put a wicked in wicked. <laughs> It's a wicked good paramedic school. <laughs> oh my gosh. So uh, the, the short version of it is Brad and I, Brad actually owns uh, NMETC. He's one of the main lead instructors and, and he runs people through an online paramedic school. And it sounds crazy that it's online, but it is legit. It is hard. There's some some ninety something percent pass rate. I think it, when you and I were there, it was ninety nine percent pass rate. Like it was, it was, yeah, it was it was high. ridiculous. Yeah. So it's a shout very out to very them. good program. Yep. I totally agree. Uh, and now you've moved on to critical care paramedic. You're a flight paramedic at that, and doing all sorts of other things, running, racing, staying busy, Stay, staying out of trouble. My dad That's always told me, is. you know, <laughs> yeah, right. you stay busy, you stay out of trouble. Oh, it's funny, yeah. man. You know, as a, as a paramedic, like all you ever want to do is fly. And I've been flying for like three years now or so. And it, it's fun. Like, I love it. And it's cool being in the helicopter. But I'll tell you, I love our ground days now. It's like you have more space. You, get, you can stop for lunch. You know, it's easy. It's easier to pee. <laughs> like we're not... uh, yeah. 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 Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. Um, no, I'd rather be in the air, but I'll tell you, there is something said about having a little more room in the cabin. <laughs> oh, it's nicer now. Like at, at MedFlight, we have the H145s, which is great. I mean, not nearly oh, nice. as big as what you guys are using, but they, it's a, a nice Hems helicopter. Like, I was flying in a 407 in Haiti last week. That was cramped. <laughs> 407, you can fit like one person down like the middle of it, and then you're squished off to the side of the door. You're like, yeah, I'm secure. I'm in. Oh yeah, and it's in there. there. It's yeah, your you, your nurse partner, a Haitian EMT translator, and a family member all, all in the back. So. We crazy. feel like sardines in here. What the hell's going on? Yeah, it's like a hundred <laughs> degrees out. The air air conditioning sometimes works. Yeah, it's awesome. Oh my gosh! In in Haiti, how long did you were you down in Haiti? I was actually only there for a week. Um, it was par partially what MedFlight could give me the time off to do and um, partially because they were switching aviation vendors uh, while I was there. So that with the FAA certificate, the last like four or five days I was supposed to be there, um, they weren't flying, so I ended up coming home. Oh, dang. All right, we're gonna have to circle back to that one. Like, uh, we'll circle back. You got me. Yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. As a matter of fact, we gotta, let's start from the beginning. You, let's get a little background about Bobby because you, you have an amazing story. Uh, you wrote a book. You've run a marathon on all seven continents. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Even down in Antarctica? It's true. I didn't even know they had a marathon in Antarctica. What? It's true. And it's, it's a thing. People do it. Oh, that's crazy. That's, that's insane. Awesome. But all right. I like it. So how did all this start for you? So it, it all started for me. Well, you want to talk about the running or, or how I got into what I do now? Well, let's start with just you. Give me a little background about you. With me. Yeah. Right, so I'm a, a critical care flight paramedic with Boston Med Flight. I've been flying for three years. Uh, I was previously up at Dartmouth, um, and I've been a paramedic for nine years and EMS for about 12. 
Uh, I live in New England. I love it. Wouldn't change it. It's just starting to get cold here. Snow's in the mountains. So it's starting to be my favorite time of year. All right. And, uh, and I love my job. I, I think I'm one of the rare, rare exceptions in, you know, modern humanity that I can say I love going to work every day. Freaking right. Well, that's beautiful. Um, who doesn't love going to work? I, well, I love going to work, but I love what I do too. So that helps. I'd say, I'd say most people. It sucks when you're like shooting the shit with your friends and you're like, yeah, I gotta fucking work on Monday. I'm like, I would love if I was working Monday. <laughs> I know. That's when the most fun happens. Come on. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's great. Nice. Um, so background a little bit more there you born in new england born and raised worked all over new england you've been up through new hampshire went to school up in new hampshire yeah mm -hmm. yep nice. yeah i grew up in the, the south shore of massachusetts and uh you know my parents have the much more pronounced boston accent than i do but um that's where you know that's where it all started for me i was uh my dad was a actually worked with brad at Stoughton Fire Department. He was a captain down there for, you know, 35 plus years and an ER nurse. And he was the one who, who really inspired me to get into EMS. And mostly because, listen to this, man, you'll love this. I was in seventh grade in science class. And uh, it's like just when you're starting anatomy and physiology. And I remember sitting there watching this video, right? And this kid's riding his bicycle and he falls and it's in slow motion. It's really cinematic. And you see like his radius come through his skin and this, you know, compound Ooh. fracture. I passed out straight on the floor came to the teachers over me there's you know 20 plus my classmates staring at me it's like the worst thing as a 13 year old boy going through puberty to have that happen i'll tell you it was terrible it was awful so that from there it's like blood guts not for me i'm i'm tapping out i was getting you know excuse notes from my mom to like miss hell it was terrible man it's so embarrassing but my dad was like not my son uh, absolutely no he's like you're coming to work with me and we're gonna we're gonna figure this out through exposure so um, oh my God. so that's what i did i started going to work and riding the fire my dad was a shift commander so i get to you know ride around in the, the command car with him and buzz around all these calls and it was truly just exposing myself to, to this where i got over it and i was 15 so the only like certification type thing. i was too young to be an emp but you do a lifeguard course so that's what i did because i just wanted to be involved and help out and I got my first job at, a, you know, it's a, it sounds like badass, like a lifeguard. Right? I, was, where I worked at a courtyard, Marriott, the deep end was like four feet. I was like, I was yelling at people to take Pringles out of the pool. I wasn't doing anything crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? I think you should run with that. I think you should run exact opposite. Like I had to go through like the hardest lifeguard course ever for Marriott. You have no idea. Right. That must drown me twice. Oh, uh, dude. It's funny now because I, I do I do a lot of triathlon, right? So I I got okay at so I do a lot, I do a lot of Ironman. But my fiance, I just got engaged this past year. And she uh, she's hey, playing Congratulations, in that's great. Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Well, it's good and it's bad because she's like I've been doing Ironman for seven years now. I don't know if she'd now. agree with she, you with that. I'm gonna throw that dude, out there. I don't... She... <laughs> <laughs> no, she does. She's the most competitive oh, okay, person okay. in the world. So so we um we do that. we're we're gonna just continue to digress on this, man. It's gonna be a fun fun podcast but so, so she did her first she, she did her first iron man in uh august in montreal we did it together which i thought it would be so fun and then she just kicked my ass man she's such an athlete <laughs> so I, I thought i thought i was a good swimmer until i met her and i'm just sucking wind the whole time now <laughs> oh man um congratulations to her i'm sorry you're second place yeah no, it's good. I, I have you know to, I have to Actually, give her some props. She'll probably listen to this, and I, you know, I don't want to look bad. So, 
<laughs> That's okay. Just, you know what? It's good training right now. You will always be in second place. Just That's a first place loser. That's what she likes to say. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Yeah. I love my wife and I'm always second to her. Just ask her. As long as you know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You know what? Right now, she's listening to this. She's just shaking her head right now. She's like, oh, that son of a... <laughs> She's at work. She makes more than me. I'm losing in every aspect, man. That's me too. Man, you and I are going to get along great after this. You know what? We can get together and drink our stores away. In the beer. With the beer. In the bar downtown. And they can pay for it. Yeah, yeah. This is awesome, man. No, but you know what's funny? So I, I, I had this uh, this Courtyard Marriott job. My mom loved it because she got the employee discount, right, for all this hotel stuff. I was just, you know, trying to trying to exist through high school and do this. But I actually had a rescue, not not at work, but outside of work. And it's, like, by far the most significant thing I've done in medicine. Like, nothing's come close in the past, like, you know, 12 years of EMS. But it's crazy. So is this going to be your very first rescue? This would be, yeah, I was, I was 15. Okay, so I, I love this right now because not only, you and I talked a little bit offline, but this is how you got into Search and Rescue. This is how you, like, what really burned the fires to get you going. And uh, at 15 years old, you actually earned yourself a life-saving medal. It was a silver life-saving medal. You actually have a whole bunch. Um, so... In 2009, you earned yourself the Massachusetts House of Representative Certificate for Heroism, Massachusetts Senate Certificate for Heroism, New Hampshire Bureau of EMS, uh, EMS Heroism Award, and the Humane Society Commonwealth of Massachusetts Silver Medal in Lifesaving. Bro, this is awesome. Uh, What I have right here is I actually have the write-up, so I'd like to read what you did and then i would love to get the backstory and the fact that this is your first one ever yeah i i can totally get it so i'm excited to hear what the backstory is so here it goes july 16th 2009 meredith new hampshire bobby o'donnell 15 was spending the day with his six friends on lake winnipesaukee the boys all from easton mass were vacationing with bobby's father at the o'donnell summer home near the lake Six of the boys were playing Frisbee in and out of the water. One specific toss of the Frisbee landed about 30 to 40 feet out in the water. John Lee, 15, swam out to retrieve the Frisbee. After several minutes, someone asked, where's the Frisbee? Where's John? The Frisbee was spotted floating in the water, but John was nowhere to be seen. Bobby O'Donnell had just approached the other boys, heard the concern and questions, instructed someone to call 911, and call his father, and immediately swam out to the area of the Frisbee. He then started diving, looking for John. On his second dive, he found John submerged in the lake bottom in approximately 10 feet of water. He pulled him to the surface and swam up to the shore. Upon reaching the shore, John was not breathing and had no pulse. He was blue and his body was limp. Bobby, who had taken CPR training, administered CPR. By the time Bobby's father arrived and together, Mr. O'Donnell, a member of the Staunton Fire Department, and Bobby continued taking turns with compressions and ventilations. They worked on John Lee for approximately 10 to 15 minutes when finally a pulse was found and respirations began. 
John then coughed up water and regained consciousness. The police and EMTs arrived after John was conscious and transported John to the Laconia Hospital, where he spent the night in the ICU. He was discharged the next morning, fully recovered. Holy cow, Bobby! Freaking 15 years old, man. What? Okay, run us through it, man. What happened? It, it it's crazy, man. Because you know, I now working in critical care, and you know, we're doing a lot of you know cardiac arrest and stuff like that all the time. This is still the the most successful I think I've been since that day. It's all gone downhill from there. <laughs> but, that, that's like uh, yeah. that's terrible to hear. <laughs> well, no. So so this is the thing, and you know, this is one of the the points that I want to get into. You know, maybe later on, but the reason that this rescue was successful was because it was one, it was witnessed and two, it was early access to high quality chest compressions, which is the, you know, we can do all the crazy medicine we want in the helicopter, but if they didn't get good CPR, early defibrillation, none of it matters, you know? So, but yeah. we will touch on that because everyone, everyone, it's a humanly duty should know CPR, man. I'm so passionate about that, but, and it started from this day. This day is why I, am where I am now and why I work for Boston MedFlight. It was, uh, we had gone up to my folks place up on Lake Winnipesaukee. They still have that house. We were there, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Nice. And so this was, I'm 29, 14 years ago. And we we're, you know, joking around on the late, you know, teenage boys. And John grew, actually grew up in Korea. He's my best friend. And he moved here when they were, when he was 11 years old. And they didn't, it's not like growing up on the coast where you learn how to swim. And it's just, yeah, I don't even remember learning to swim. But he got so comfortable throughout the week swimming off the boat with a life jacket on that he had this kind of false sense of security about being able to go in the water. And what ended up happening was one of the, one of the kids was, uh, they were joking around. And John threw the frisbee at him, and it over overflew him into the water. And it was just one of those things. Being a teenage boy, you know, you threw it, you go get it. And John went out to get it, and didn't have his life jacket on, and got a big gulp of water. And uh, that was the last thing he remembered. So, one of the kids came up running. There's the parking area it was up a short hill, maybe hundred meters away, and he came running. I was up there grabbing some sodas out of the car to bring back down. And my friend Kyle said, "You know, Bobby, John went in the water. He hasn't come back up." So I told him to call my dad, call 911. And it's one of those, it's kind of the first experience, you know, when you're on calls and, and running and stuff like that, you don't really think about it. You fall back to that training. And that's why it's so interesting that a, a basic CPR course or a basic lifeguard course, and maybe it's just a, a malleable brain at the age of 15, you take all that so seriously. And so it's just action mode from the beginning and ran down and I saw where the Frisbee was, thought that would be a good place to start looking, swam out and you know, it seems like everything's going by in slow motion when you're doing this. In, in real time, it plays back so much faster, but I felt like it was taking forever to find. I remember going down that first time and looking for him. And, the, you know, it was fortunate because the water temperature was so cold, which is what probably preserved his neurofunction. But it was also really murky. So you're looking around and I had really no experience doing anything like this before. It's you know, trying to think about, you know, what they do in the movies. Right? <laughs> so I'm searching and look, look, looking around. And then um, I thought I saw something that was running out of air, came back up, went back down and kind of ended up right on top of him. And I remember his body just kind of lay in there and got under his arms and pushed my legs up the bottom, got him to the surface, swam him back, got him just out of the water. 
And uh, he was pulseless apneic, was, uh, perioral cyanosis, and just started doing chest compressions and got through, you know, one round of compressions, one round of breaths, and then uh, my dad showed up. But, you know, that was always the joke, too, when we went back to school, because we went back, it was our uh, sophomore year of high school. And they were like, oh, man, O'Donnell is making out with his best friend over the summer. <laughs> I, was like, I, didn't, I didn't even had a girlfriend yet. John John was my first kiss, man. You know how much that sucks? I tell him all yeah, the time. That's, that's really, <laughs> I'm going to say that's fucked up, man. You save the kid's life and then they're picking on you for it? That's messed up, man. What? It's terrible. But, but uh, yeah, I'll tell you, man, after his career in healthcare, it's the first and only time I'll ever do mouth to mouth. I can't believe that. That was the, you know, the old way of doing stuff. <laughs> So, you know, so we, we were, me and my dad worked this code and, which is just another crazy experience. I have a very good relationship with my father and it was such a, um, you know, retrospectively such an interesting thing to, to do together. But um, we worked him for, you know, based on the call times and looking back at the records for about seven, eight minutes. And he, I remember John just spitting up this huge, huge, uh, you know, bit of water. And just started coughing and breathing on his own and opening his eyes and just thinking to myself, holy shit, I can't believe this works. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it, which is, a, you know, a really different experience than what a lot of other people's first time doing CPR is. Usually it's unsuccessful uh, or it's really prolonged and, you know, you hand off to EMS and, and whatever. But it worked. He spit up all that water, started talking to us by the time the EMPs got there and got him on the stretcher. He spent one night in the hospital and left the next day full, well, we say fully neurologically intact. I'm like, you're just back to your baseline, man. <laughs> I wouldn't call it, I don't know if I call that full neuro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Damn, man. But, but wow. after that happened, it was an addictive feeling, right? Being able to, to impact life in that way. I said, I want to, this is what I want to do in, in some capacity. I want to work in emergency medicine. I'm not sure how, uh, how that will play out, but I want to be able to do this and impact people's lives. Wow. Wow. Just wow. Yeah. I, I gotta, like, I gotta break this down a little bit. Cause this is, this is blowing my mind right now. Like 15 years old. Can I even remember when I was 15 years old? Yeah, I, I think so. But <laughs> I, you know, like, I, I grew up on a lake in Massachusetts as well. So for us, it was swimming all the time. Um, at mm -hmm. 15 years old, I don't, one, I definitely didn't know CPR. So that's bonus for you there, for sure. And mm -hmm. I, I don't even know, I think I would have been calling for somebody like, hey, so my, my friend is underwater. We don't know where he is. Like, did you have a mask on? Did you have goggles or something? Were you or just going down? No, not, nothing. Just go, going blind and, you know, bl blurry eyes. That was it. Wow, but you know, what man. else are you going to do? Yeah, your, your, your buddies out there. I, I have a vague idea of what's supposed to happen and what this is supposed to look like. And you're sure as hell going to give it a try. Yeah. Did any of your other buddies come in with you? Yeah, they did. Yeah. Every, everyone, you know, was trying to do their part. And I was fortunate that it's crazy how all these pieces line up with each other. Was, you know, I, I passed out in science class. My dad brought me to work with him. I wanted to be able to get some sort of certification. I learned CPR and Four, literally three, four months later, this happened. Uh, but if wow. I didn't do that, if I didn't take that class, I, I would have been in the same boat and had absolutely no idea what to do. I'm just calling for help. Dude, that is incredible. Well done. Like, smart thinking right off the get-go. That's awesome. Damn, man. One of the, the best things now, that, you know, I talked to John pretty regularly, and he just had his first child in August, which is just super cool. So, it's just I a, was going to ask awesome, you that, awesome too. Like, 
yeah, so he was your friend then. So obviously you're still friends now. He, so 14 years yep. later, and he just had his first kid. Oh. Yep, just had his first kid. So it's an awesome, healthy baby girl, and everyone's doing well. It's it's awesome stuff. So did he name her Bobby or what? No, no, that would have been that would have been bad. It would have been so unfortunate for that child. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wish that. I just you know you get half, yeah. Bobby C, uh, Bobby yeah, Joe, absolutely. Bobby something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you saved the guy's life and all. Crazy. Uh, uh, <laughs> on, on top of all this, which is, it's just wild how all these dots connected. A few years, when I was in college, um, you know, five years later, I was speaking at this conference in Ohio for this nonprofit. And this, uh, after my talk, this woman uh, reached out to me via Facebook. And because my talk is about, you know, overcoming fear and things in relation to the Boston Marathon bombing. But, um, and not letting fear inhibit you from doing certain things. So this woman reaches out to me on Facebook and I get off the plane and I go through my text and I see this message request. And it's this woman from Michigan who uh, was at my talk, but didn't want to get up and, and speak to me after, but her 15 or 14, 14 year old son, the previous summer was at football camp uh, on a lake and drowned and died. And oh. now she, her and her husband have been, and it was their only child. And, and the crazy thing about it, Jason, is I don't talk about the John Lee story during my presentation. Like, it's not a normal part. So she had no idea that there was this other component in my life. So she reaches out to me saying that she, her and her husband really want to help and, and work on, you know, throughout the state, providing water safety education and all this stuff. But there's so much grief that they're going through. And she kept thinking about how she views and how most people view drowning is this horrific, terrible death. And she can't help but to think how much her son suffered when he died. And I'm reading this message and I can't believe it. Cause when I talked to John about what it was like to drown, it's funny. Cause if you were teenagers, right? So he's joking around. He's like, it just felt like I got really high. And then I fell asleep. He's like, it was a very peaceful. Wow. He's like, there's that initial panic. He's like, there's an initial, and I don't, this is an end size of one, right? This is just John's experience. But he said there, you know, there's the initial panic, right? Because you're drowning and then your lungs fill up with water. And then he said it was just very calm and very peaceful. So I'm reading this message from this woman. And I said, look, I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, here's my phone number. Can you give me a phone call? I said, I I have a story to share with you. So I tell her this whole story about John. And I said, look, this might be helpful for you. I'll talk to John. Maybe I can connect you both so you can speak with him what it was like for his experience drowning because he had a very different sensation of what we perceive drowning to be like. So I talked to John. He said, absolutely. They got on the phone and he was able to kind of comfort this woman that maybe her son didn't go through this traumatically you know, awful suffering during his last, his last few breaths. Oh my gosh. Bro, you just gave me chills, man. That's, that's incredible. It, yeah. Every, every time I tell a story, it's just, you can't believe I'm not an overly religious fellow, but you, there, there are certain things that just happen that you can't explain and people get put in the right place at the right time. And you guys know what the Coast Guard, that happens all the time for you folks. Can I get an amen? That's what I'll say to that. All right. <laughs> wow. Holy shit, dude. Like the, the thought of that connecting at 15 years old, you save one of your best friends who's alive now and just had a child. Congratulations to him. Congratulations, John. I'm throwing that out there to you. So if you're yep. listening right now, this congrats, is great to you. Congrats, man. That's awesome. Um, 
you connect them with somebody with non-related that you you give somebody a peace of mind like that, like a closure. That's that's incredible. That's awesome. Wow. You can't make it up. Like some some of these connections are just wild. Dang man. One of the other crazy connections. I'm I'm gonna keep going. I don't want to derail us let's too think. much. But no, that's so what I, I was, man. I'm digging it. Right. So I was uh, when you were asking for the write up of that award, and it's funny because I've ever since you reached out, I've been listening to your podcast, which is awesome. It's so much fun. Nice. But I feel like the biggest imposter syndrome listening to some of these stories that these guys are talking. Like I, I'm this this critical care nerd, right? Like I, I've been like just trying to lift more of my textbooks this week to to maybe like live up to some of the other guys you have on. <laughs> um, so I, I'm tr- I'm trying to find the write up uh, from the mass life saving. Uh, society mass life-saving awards and the mass humane society uh so i went on their website and they didn't have an email for me to reach out to it's this really old organization like they were incorporated in 1784 or something like that and they were through all through all my reading like they were one of the predecessors to the coast guard um like they they were initially doing a lot of the coastal rescues in massachusetts um which is really interesting Uh, so i've got it up right here uh let me let me zoom in real quick it's it's actually so yeah, prior to was the life oh life saving service. So it was the life saving service prior to the U.S. Yeah. Coast Guard when they when they combined them all. Right, should have known that. Should have known my yeah. Coast Guard history. Um, which was my bad. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. And then I was on um, on their website. I was looking at some of the stuff, and um, they do a lot of you know funding and philanthropy for hospitals and organizations in Massachusetts, and uh, they do a lot with Brigham and Women's Hospital. And they do a lot with Boston Medplate, and I had no idea. Like they bought the first uh, like set of defibrillators for the helicopters. They equipped the first set of night vision goggles for Boston Medplate. Oh, wow! So I finally had to call this. I had to call this lady to try to uh, get this this record from this write up. And I'm talking to her, and I, you know, it's it's crazy. But now I actually work for Boston Medplate, and um, it was just that kind of a cool full circle moment. They're a great organization that does a lot for a lot of great groups. So it's it's amazing how things come full circle. Dang, that's pretty cool, man. That is pretty cool. Well, good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, like again, strong work. Fifteen years old. It's it's a uh, it's a weird spot to be because you're you're just learning life, and to be able to just go. Well done, well done. I yeah, I, I think it, it made me grow up a little bit quicker. That's for sure. It, oh yeah. You get get to see the balance balance of life and death at kind of an age like that is definitely as impactful yeah. and, and set the set the tone for where you go moving forward. Wow, dude, awesome, Bobby. Thanks for sharing, man. That's uh, that's pretty sick, dude. Uh, well done. I I mean that. That's cool. <laughs> that's. Uh, I hope I. I don't know if you want like a lecture on like metabolic acidosis for the rest of this, or cause that's like maybe real yeah. rescue. <laughs> Your, your listeners are gonna be like, "What the hell? This guy sucks." We can get into that a little later, because then I'll get it. It's metabolic acidosis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta start breathing that it's shit sad, off. Come was, on, man. <laughs> I was in ECMO class all morning, man. I'm just regurgitated. <laughs> uh, perfect, perfect. All right. Yeah. Well, before we do that, you did quickly mention like you you had kind of a weird, funny rescue uh, when you were a, a Marriott lifeguard. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is the best part. I, I had retired from my Marriott career at this point. I was just a casual guest. So my mom was already pissed off because we didn't even get the discount at this Marriott. Oh, um, we were, 
if, if you were to read off the rewar the award for this one, it was like we got uh, my mom got her hotel reward points back because they felt bad, and I got a pair of flip flops, and they sent like a fruit basket to the room. So it's, you know, talking about top tier awards. That's wow. <laughs> no, we were. Um, awesome. It was. It was actually. So it was while I was in paramedic school, um, and it was same, simultaneously my sophomore year of college at Saint A's. And we went, my, my grandmother's a huge Red Sox fan. So we went, for my spring break, me, my mom, and my grandmother went down to Fort Myers to, to go watch some of spring training. And I was training for the Boston Marathon. So I brought my running shoes with me about two months away. And the first night that we're down at this hotel, it's uh, on the Sanibel Island Marriott. And it's right on the water. It's a really beautiful spot. And it was like two queen beds in the room. And we got a, a, for my mom, one for my mom, one for my grandma. And then they got like a, a roller roller bed. And I said, you know, this is cool as hell. It's just a nice balcony. I'm going to put this bed on the balcony. I'm going to sleep outside. And my mom is like the, the most nervous person in the world. It's crazy. Like I've put her through hell, like traveling the world the last like seven years. But and I love her. But she's like, you can't, you're going you're gonna to fall off the balcony. I'm like, I'm not going to fall off the fucking balcony. So, Come so on, it's mom. the middle of the night. It's this first night, right? Yeah, first night. And, um, I wake up in the middle of the night and I, I swear to God, I, I, I thought I heard someone yelling help. And I'm, and I'm looking out and it's dark and you can kind of hear the ocean. And uh, I thought I heard it again. And my mom comes running, swings the balcony door because she heard it too. And she thought that I was falling off the balcony and was yelling help. <laughs> and so she, she, do you think I'm saying, no, I said, mom, I said, I think, I think someone's in trouble out there. I'm going to, you know, I was in paramedic school and I was, you know, going to be the, the big hero for all this stuff. I'm like, I, I got to go help. So, so I know I go hero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, have an, I have an obnoxious name too that because I was named after my dad. So my mom loves to like yell it when she's upset and she's like, Robert Gerard O'Donnell the third, you do not get in that water. <laughs> so I'm like, screw this, man. I gotta go see what's going on down here. So I go, I run it out. You go through like the pool area and then there's this little beach and there's two, you know, docks that go out with some, you know, super fancy boats on it. And there were a couple other people that had congregated and they see, and I was like, you hear someone yelling help out there? And I said, yeah, we're hearing it. We don't know where it is. So you kind of now start to hear the splashing in the water and you look out and there's this, uh, this guy who's just clinging to one of the, the posts on the dock. So you're running out in the water level is like maybe like five feet below the, the dock. So you couldn't really reach him and he was starting to go under the water and his, he was in full clothes. It was kind of odd clinical picture trying to piece stuff together Two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. So we kind of organized, we, I, I think we had like just done MCI stuff in, uh, in paramedic school. And I, I must've looked like such an idiot, man. I'm just like wimpy 20 year old kid. And there's all these adults. I'm like, you're going to stay up here and you're going to guide us from the top you're a good swimmer. You're going to get in with me. We're going to get on each other side. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea. I was like, like talking about stuff that I saw in movies. So, whatever. Awesome. so I get in with this girl and we, we jump in the water and he's, it's like the thing that you always see the drying people, right? He's immediately trying to get on top of me. Like he, he detaches from the post. He's trying to push me underneath him. And I finally get underneath his arms. I'm starting to calm him down. And we had gotten like an inner tube from the pool area. So they had dropped that down to us and we tried to get that around him and I'm trying to calm him down. And one of the first things I noticed, which was crazy, is that there was a bunch of blood in the water. I'm like, this guy, you're trying to run through differentially. You're like, why is this 70 year old man 
in the water at three o'clock in the morning. Why is there so much blood? Where is this blood coming from? So you're trying to do this trauma sweep on him. You're in, you're not in a dangerous spot, right? Like you're close to shore. You just need to work on getting him back and calming him down and keeping everyone else safe. I'm doing the sweep and he's really incoherent. He had an altered mental status. You know, he didn't get his head. I'm trying to work through all this stuff. So we're slowly kind of working our way back. And um, they had gotten like one of the pool cleaners, one of the poles. So they they have that in there and I'm holding on to it. And they're just kind of dragging us along. And the, the current is just kind of gently pushing us into the, the piers of the dock. And there's just like all this blood. Like, where's all this blood? coming? I'm, I'm not feeling any holes in the box. I don't see anything in his head. And uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking to myself now, I'm like, geez, I'm like, it's kind of like dark out. We're in Florida. It's warm water. It's all this blood. I'm like, you're like sharks and shit. And I'm, like, I'm saying to the guy, but I'm like, why don't you like pull us in a little bit quicker? I'm like, <laughs> so pull us in. So it ended up being what it was. It was all my blood. And because what had happened was there were all of these barnacles that were all over this thing. And I think it was just the adrenaline of the situation. I wasn't feeling it just like ripping my arms and back apart. And I was on the oh. inside corner of this. So. We just got to where I'm just dripping blood ever. And it's just as like my mom is coming down. Like she finally made her way down and I'm just like all bloodied up. There's people everywhere. And so what had happened, <laughs> she's so pissed. So what had happened was um, he lived next door and was a diabetic and had an issue with his insulin and got severely hypoglycemic and went out, like wandered out in the middle of the night and just fell into the water. And, and that's all, all that had happened. But so you know, I have all these like open cuts with marine bacteria everywhere trying to find this clinic. They put me on like, like marine bacteria is super bad. Like you can get sick from that. Yeah. So they, they put me on this like long course of Keflex and bandaged everything up. So now it's like day one in Florida. It's like 85 degrees. I'm just covered in Curlex on antibiotics. Can't go in the water. I can't, can't, I can't. I'm trying to go do my long run for this training thing. And the bandages are just falling off. Like I probably looked like a, you know, druggie going oh through the streets. <laughs> it was crazy, man. But, you know, Marriott was great. Got that, got that nice fruit basket. I still have the cooler that they gave me. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice memento. <laughs> That's it. Those are my two water rescues. They're, you know, they're one like very serious, one, you know, could have been serious. Dude, that's hilarious. I love it. Yeah. Well done. Another life yeah. saved. Moving Thank on. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I gotta I gotta switch it a little like normally. <laughs> wow, well, you know what? It's all good. It's fun because this it's is what dramatic. I love about this stuff. It doesn't matter. It's like you just you save two people's lives that were Drowned, drowning, drowned, past tense, and then mm-hmm. drowning. Like, well done. This is this nobody ever hears about this stuff. This is why I love the like hearing these stories. It's so much fun. So thank you. I appreciate you sharing that. That's yeah. hilarious. I'm glad your Absolutely. mom freaked out and was like, Bobby, Robert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh awesome. man. Yeah. So let me uh let she me, still let does, me tweet- man. Does she really? You know what? My mom does too. Yeah. Well, cause, so. so we, I mean, we have, we have five helicopters at med flight. So it's still like before every ship, she's like, um, can you, I don't want to bother you, but can you text me your tail number so I can track you on flight aware? <laughs> like I'm 30 years old, mom. <laughs> yeah. All right. My mom's not quite that bad, but with, you know, it'll be funny. So seeing your, your fiance is, you know, like it's, it's happening. You're going to get married. It's when your fiance uses your full name that you know you've <laughs> right, you've hit a new level. Cause my wife, Jason Patrick, I'm like, oh shit, I'm really in trouble now. <laughs> oh man, I, I haven't made it there yet. She's just like, hey asshole. <laughs> yeah, stand by. 
Yeah. <laughs> Not that I want to give her any ideas or anything, but you know, just you know, letting you know. You're screwing me over, man. I thought we were on the same team. Sorry, 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 sorry. Can we edit that out? Can we cut that out? I'm just asking. I'm just. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're gonna divert real quick to thank our sponsors, Breeze Eastern. For over 80 years, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured battle-proven aerial rescue hoists, winches, and cargo hooks. Each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios, ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. All right, so let me tweak this a little bit because one of the other really cool things about, about you is you were just talking about your training for the Boston marathon and you mentioned it a little mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, you ran the Boston, you ran the Boston marathon and the Boston marathon bombing happened while you were running it. So yeah, poor timing, poor timing. Holy shit. Um, wow. And that is actually what led you to write the book, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. as well as run on all seven continents, a marathon on all seven continents. Yeah, it's true. It, it was a, and it ended up being long term and expensive, uh, bad experience for me. <laughs> Damn, it, well, it's I, you know the Boston Marathon. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was going to back up. Like, I I don't know how. Again, you whatever details you want to give is up to you. Uh, so I had family members that were running in the Boston Marathon when it happened. They were not mm-hmm. near the finish line when it went off. Um, and I'm thankful and I'm sorry for anybody that was at the finish line around that time when it went off. It was it was not it was a terrible scene. Um, but for you, where were you when it when it happened? Um, I was right before the turn on Hereford. So you know the like it's I was a half mile away, but it's those last two turns. So it's right on Hereford, left on Boylston. So it's really like you know, couple couple hundred yards from the finish line. Damn. So my whole family was at the finish line. That was the worst part of all of it. Holy cow! Um, afterwards, because you just don't know. You know, and all the chaos that ensued following that, you have no idea what's going on. And um, sorry, can we just back up a little bit? Because I just want to like oh, start that do. a little bit more cohesively. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know if we were speaking casually about that or if it's about the plan of how you wanted to go through talking about this or. Uh, no, we can let, let's back it up because I this is yeah, I, I'm intrigued. So and yeah, because this is like primarily what I usually talk about. Okay, yeah, let's let's hit it. Let's uh, hit the ground running. All right. So I was 19. I thought I was I thought I was cursed, right? Because I was like, you know, my best friend almost drowns at 15. I'm trying to go through high school. Now I'm running the Boston Marathon. There's a bombing going on all this stuff just keeps following me around I'm like a black cloud. <laughs> I'm like, I just got to stay in the house and not go anywhere. <laughs> but so <laughs> I, lo- I love though that, you know, 10 years later, I can talk about the Boston marathon and laugh a little bit. Cause it was, it was the worst day of my life. It was the worst day of a lot of people's lives. And um, a lot of people had it so much worse than I ended up having it. And that's why when we talk about mental health too, that, that was one of the things that I struggled with was at, in the aftermath I said to myself, look, I'm still alive. All my limbs are attached to my body and none of my family is dead. You know, why do I have any right to feel upset or stressed or anxious about any of this? And it's such an important concept in in mental health that your worst day is comparative only to you and to no one else. The scale stops, 
you know, where your body ends. Uh, yeah, I can't say, you know, well, Jason had all this shit going on. And so my stuff is minuscule compared to that. So I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to push it down because I don't have the right to. And that's so totally inaccurate. And that's a hard concept for people to reconcile with. But when the, when the bombing happened, I was just around the corner from the finish line. But the worst part of it was my whole family was at the finish line. And very thankfully, my uncle works for John Hancock and he had gotten them these seating passes so that they would be able to sit in the grandstands on the right side of Boylston Street. So if they didn't have that, they would have been standing exactly where the bombs went off. And my dad, because they have the tracking that goes along with it. So they got the 40K tracking alert. My dad had his cell phone out and was filming because he knew that I'd be coming through at any second. And eight seconds into his video, he has the bombs on camera. It was oh crazy. Gosh. I very thankfully like screwed my hip up and slowed down. It, like it possibly saved my life. Wow. <clears throat> so the the after effects of that though, so they had stopped, so I couldn't get through to the the finish line. And so the police were turning people away, and it was everyone was wondering what was happening because you could hear like you were so close that you could hear the bombs, but you couldn't visually see them where I was. And you don't just stop the Boston Marathon. Like, it's this crazy. And, like, people are getting pissed off because they had no idea what was happening. And it wasn't the best way to describe it is, like, something out of a movie where however much time later, like, my whole timeline of that day is such a blur, uh, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But all of these people started, they were coming back towards you from the finish line running and screaming. Like, it was like what you see in a zombie movie. You're in this urban environment with all these people stampeding through and you have no idea what's going on and finally i stopped someone and i asked her it, what, what was going on and she looked up and i'll never forget that look in her eyes she said that bombs were exploding at the finish line she had no idea that it was you know just two isolated blasts it was that these consecutive blasts going down boylston street and bodies and limbs everywhere and so i immediately tried to get to when i tried to get to the finish line so i wanted to get to my family and when i could yeah. do that i said all right i need to get to i don't run i didn't run with a cell phone so I said, I need to get find a cell phone so I can try to call my folks and make sure they're okay and figure out a rally point. So I, the, now the news crews that were at the finish line and having to egress from there were kind of making their way out towards us. And I stopped a news reporter and I asked if I could borrow a cell phone to call my, call my mom. And um, I dialed her number and it was just this automated message that said, you know, the, your call can't be completed. So I said, all right. So I dialed my dad. It was the same thing. I dialed my grandma, the same thing. I dialed my high school girlfriend. It's the same thing. So to me, it wasn't the fact that, you know, this was a tactful decision of we need to shut down public cell service to clear channels for first responders. And we're worried about detonation of secondary devices from this. It was that their phones blew up and they don't work anymore. Oh, my um, God. And yeah. I didn't know what to do, right? I'm 19 yeah. years old. I'm not, I grew up on the South Shore, but I'm not that familiar with Boston. So I've just been running for four hours. I don't have anything on my person except my iPod. And what do you do, right? My, in, in that moment, it was my whole, every single person that I cared about in my life was dead. And I will say one of the best things that makes me so proud to be a Bostonian is that it brought out the, the best parts of humanity in the city that day, because there is a fraction of people that run the Boston Marathon that are even from Massachusetts. They're from all over the world. And it's a point to point race. So in the morning, you have to get shuttled to the start line out in Hopkinton. And then your, you know, your keys, your wallet, your cell phone, your hotel keys, all of that goes to the finish line, which now you don't have access to. So you have all of these people 
who, who are uninjured on the other side of things, right? Not, not even talking about the amount of resources that were required to get the injured to the hospitals. But you have all these people who have no familiarity with where they are. They have nothing on them. They can't even get to their hotel. They don't even know where it is. Um, just wandering around Boston and they're just cold and tired and scared. And almost every single person that was home and in their apartment was opening their doors and bringing people into their house and giving them oh, water, wow. food. It, it was it was so, now looking back at it, it, it was just such a cool example of people taking care of people, which like in the world that we live in where the news is so negative all the time, I honestly think that when given the opportunity, people are innately good and they're kind and that's such a, a good example of it. So I just sat on this woman's uh, steps for, I don't even know how long. I think when we looked back at it, it was maybe an hour or two hours. And I was just, your know, world is just like blank. I remember my mind being blank. Just wh- wh- where do you go? Where do you move forward? How do I, you know, it's an overwhelming uh, amount of, of sadness and to the point where you just kind of start to shut down. And I don't know i think it was just like a desperation or you know some sort of neuropreservation where i uh, asked her when she came back and asked if i needed anything because i didn't want to go inside i just want to sit sit on these steps and think and um i asked her if i could borrow her cell phone and i texted my mom and i said mom it's bobby i love you and she replied right away because text messages were going through so right so we made this plan i met my mom and uh, my family and you know we got out of boston and one of the most like where my heart dropped was when i finally you know saw my family from, you know, far away from the finish line and was hugging them but i didn't see my dad and i said oh my god you know what happened to dad and my dad i'm so proud of him when the bombs went off he jumped over the barricade and started treating people right away wow. he was one of the first people there on scene and was you know, put, putting tourniquets on and, you know, wrapping belts around people and triaging. And uh, he, you know, he made a huge impact that day. And I'm, you know, really proud, proud to call him my dad and everything that he's done, you know, even beyond that. Holy cow. Out of the, off the top of my head, I believe your dad actually spoke to our paramedic class about that. Cause uh, there's some things that as you're talking about it, I remember seeing pictures from the grandstand as everybody's mm-hmm. cheering and then all of a sudden mad chaos. Um, yeah, he's done, he's done some MCI lectures. I know. And I think he did a few for Brad. So that might've been that, that might wow. be able to, now we can figure out the timeline though, of when you were in school and when I was in school. Yeah. 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 But, it um, had to be. It's pretty close. So it's pretty close. it will be after, but. Um, but yeah, so it was, you know, it was this crazy thing and, you know, the, the days and weeks following where, uh, I was 19 years old and I, I lived a pretty, you know, despite these weird water rescues and stuff, I had a a pretty easy upbringing. Like I was in a a middle-class family in suburban Massachusetts. And like, I would argue that I did not face any adversity until, (laughs) until this day. Like that was my first viewpoint of the world. Uh, and um, you know, it was terrifying to me and I wasn't quite sure how to process the, those feelings and what I was going through. And uh, so I, I kind of buried it because I was so worried about how I had put my family in that situation because they wouldn't have been there if it wasn't. For, and they were struggling. They were right at the finish line and saw all these things. And they're not, bar my dad, not first responders and had this, you know, horrible exposure to so many people that day. Um, you know, we're fortunate that it doesn't happen as much in the United States as it does in other parts of the world. 
but it, you know, it was a scary thing. And I, I was so focused on trying to make sure everyone else was okay. Not in a heroic way, but just, I, I felt like a, a dickhead that I, not that I had any control over it, but they were there because of me. And um, so it went on for a long time where I didn't really process or think about some of the issues that I was dealing with and why I couldn't sleep at night or why I was, you know, starting to become distant. And most importantly to me, why I couldn't run after that, because as a college student, you know, working my first EMS job and training, you know, for these races, running was my stress relief and exercise was how I, and I didn't know it at the time, but that was how I would just mentally go throughout the, you know, the small challenges of my day. If school was stressful, I'd go for a run, I'd feel better. But now I didn't have that anymore because when I would go for a run or I'd start to lace up my shoes before I'd even start running, my heart rate would get all jacked up. I'd start sweating. And I'd be, I remember like going back to college two weeks after the marathon bombing and, um, going for a run and then calling, uh, I was like six minutes into it and uh, called my girlfriend. I'm like, hey, is everything okay? I just wanna make sure you're doing all right. And it was just this this inexplicable thing where it was like, if I didn't know what was going on, if it, you know, if people were gonna be okay. And it was a really debilitating thing. And I thought that what I needed to do was I needed to go back and same thing as the exposure to blood was I needed to re-expose myself to that. And I needed to go back and finish the Boston Marathon the next year. And that's how I, I moved forward for that next year. And like, I wasn't particularly enjoying the training. I wasn't enjoying it. I was, I ran um, co- uh, cross country in college. I didn't run that sophomore season because I didn't feel, I didn't like feeling constrained that I was going to have to run on certain days of the week. I was like, look, I think I need to just like take it slow and run when I feel comfortable to run. So I was trying to kind of doing my thing, plugging through it. And when it got to be April of 2014, uh, this is, you know, when I talked to college kids or high school students, there's a, a, a large amount of danger that revolves around having expectations on certain things. And if you have, I had this expectation that, look, my life sucks a little bit right now, but I'm going to run this race and I'm going to be back to the old Bobby O'Donnell and things are going to go back to normal. I just got to get through today. So I, I did, I ran the marathon in 2014 and the next night I woke up with a nightmare and my, my family was dead and their bodies in the street and it didn't fix a fucking thing. And you feel so defeated after that. It's a, it's an awful feeling. And I finally, at that point, was like, look, maybe I, maybe I should probably talk to someone about this because this has been going on for a year and the, the cure to what I thought, what I thought the cure was going to be, that wasn't it. And I went to the, you know, health counselor at my college and said, look, Hey, I think I need to, you know, talk to a mental health counselor. And, and she was great. It, you know, it was glad I was glad that I did it and had that experience. However, um, yeah, that didn't fix anything either, and that's an even worse feeling. And that's something that people who struggle with mental health deal with very frequently, where it mental health problems don't exist tangibly until you admit it. You're the only person who can initially make that diagnosis. It's not like like if I went out, you know, I was running this morning. If I break my ankle, that sucks. I'm gonna go to the hospital. You're gonna do some imaging. You're gonna splint it, cast it. I'll do. PT and then eight weeks I'll be back up and going. It doesn't work like that with mental health. The symptomology is not precise and it varies on person to person. So I can't say, all right, yeah, I had this, you know, shitty event happen to me, but I'm gonna go to therapy for a little bit and in eight weeks I'm gonna be good to go, ready to run, you know, happy life again. Uh and so so once you project that out and you say that to someone else that, hey, I'm I'm going through something, now it exists in the world and it becomes much more real in that sense. 
And when you, it, it's a big leap to go talk to someone else about these problems. And then when you say, all right, I'm going to make the jump. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to talk to a counselor. And then that doesn't work. That really sucks. Cause you're like, well, that, you know, I took a big gamble on myself finally, you know, having the balls to go do this and it didn't work now. Now what am I supposed to do? Yeah. 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 Um, so right. Right. It, you know, it's, it's hard. And, and I'm not saying this to discount count, obviously counseling works. I'd be a, a moron to say that it doesn't. <laughs> Uh, and it's it, right, right. Everyone, everyone's going to be coming at me and all the emails. Hey, everyone, oh, I'm not saying mean? don't go to counseling. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. No, it's great. And, and that's one of the things that's awesome. I can um, make a plug here actually for at Boston MedFlight. We have a, um, a program called the wing team and it is, you know, peer support, mental health. And, um, James Boomhauer, um, is one of our paramedics who really started it and has an organization called stay fit for duty, uh, which is all, all about mental health for first responders. And, it, we're so fortunate as an organization to have him kind of working with us and for all the stuff that we see and go through. But, you know, take, taking care of the, the noggin is really important. But so the counseling didn't work for me on that first ground. So, I'm, you know, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, how am I going to do this now? And I had an opportunity as a new paramedic to go on this mission trip to Nicaragua. And I had never left the country before. I'd only ever stayed in America. And I thought, you know, the old me would never have done this. I, I had this very cookie cutter life where I knew exactly what I was going to do. I, I had my life more figured out then than I do right now, Jason. Like I, I had it to a T. And I said, I need to just change something drastically because I'm kind of going down a path that I don't want to be going down. And I went on this trip and the, the beautiful West Coast of Nicaragua in this really rural environment to this village and I couldn't get over how amazing this place was and how beautiful it was. And I'd never heard of it before. And I very simply thought that I could see more of it if I was running than if I was just kind of walking around every day. And I, I wanted to maximize my experience there. And yeah. I hadn't run in a couple months. I had just totally given it up. I'm like, I can't do it. It stresses me out too much. And, and it, problems were just compounding because I didn't have that outlet anymore. But I went for this run on this beach and then through the jungle. And at that point, I was running not because I was trying to complete a race or I wanted a specific time or to get a medal or for anyone else. I was doing it for me. And it was just this primitive sense of getting my heart rate elevated and sweating and being in this natural environment. And that's when everything clicked for me. I was like, this is what I need to do. I need to be out in the mountains, out in the jungle, wherever these crazy places are that I can just experience the world and the good that's in it. It sounded cliche, right? But it's true. Like, that's what I felt in that moment. Like, I need to go. This is what I need to do. And I thought to myself, this is the first time I've ever traveled. The world's a big place. How am I going to kind of choose where to go next? So I set this goal that to see lots of different variety and geography, I would run a marathon on all seven continents. And that's what I spent the next couple of years of my life doing. Damn, man. That is awesome. Holy cow. Well done. Uh, a couple of years. How, how many years did it take? Thanks. Today? Yeah. Uh, I ran my first international marathon in Australia in 2015. And I finished in Nepal in 2017. It's about like two wow. and a half, three years. But it was great because wow. I, so I was a parent, I finished my paramedic my junior year of college and I was under the age of 26 so I could stay on my parents' health insurance. So I just worked as a medic per diem at like three different jobs, a hundred hours a week. And I do that for six months and then I go fuck off and travel for six months. 
Oh my god! And gosh. that's how I did it. Like I'm not. I didn't have what. I didn't have like a ton of money. It was just I'd work my ass off for all this time. And then when I was home, I would just sleep in my Toyota Rav Four or work night shift and take shower <laughs> at the gym. <laughs> oh my gosh! Holy cow! Bobby, that's freaking awesome. I I really I like I like your story about how you how you overcome it and and what it took to do that. Mm-hmm. I, there's a there's a bunch of things I, I want to actually talk about a little bit more, but the fact that you that you've not only overcome it, but you set such a high goal and then accomplished it. That's what I'm talking about. Well done. Yes. Dude, dude, the, the, um, and that, that's what I tell people, right. Is that it doesn't have to be running, right. I'm just a sicko. And that's like what worked for me. Like it could be, it could be anything. And, um, you know, I got an awesome letter recently, uh, from, I was speaking at a college and I tell this, you know, kind of a similar story um about kind of working through mental health and how important it is to start earlier on otherwise it just gets harder and even if counseling doesn't work then you find what works for you and um this this young girl sent me this letter about how she's been going through some stuff and after she listened to my talk she said all right i'm not a runner but i need to maybe i need to find an outlet or find something to do and she discovered painting and now she's just painting all the time and she's starting to get better and it's a great example of like it could be anything but you need to find something therapeutic to work through your shit Totally. I a hundred percent agree for him. I'm in the gym. I love going to the gym. It, it, it helps mm-hmm. me. Um, recently I'm, I'm doing like cold plunges and stuff. I love that too. Cause it's a, anyway, that's another side subject, but yeah, yeah no, I am with you and everybody needs it. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to throw a shout out to two people I've had on this podcast and one of them from Ireland, Keith Carolyn. He actually, he's a huge component of mental health. Uh, and, and him and I have talked about it. We had a great conversation about it. And, and like you said earlier, like if you go to somebody and you're talking to them and it just doesn't work out and you don't feel good afterwards, well, maybe it's not, it's not so much them. You maybe just didn't get the connection. And then my next one I'm going to throw in there is Sam Fielder from Australia. So he specifically went to like two, two people off the top of my head. And then the third guy that he went to, that's the dude that actually took time to say, ah, I got you. Not, you know, we're going to try this. We're going to try this. We're going to try this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sam's up flying again. He's doing what he loves to do. And it's, it's all finding the right person. So I, absolutely I'm with you. So absolutely. Yeah. But it, you know, in that moment for people, it can be hard. So no, it's yeah, huge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's re- reassuring to hear, you know, other people having similar experiences, but you know, when you're, you're in that hole and you have that first one not work, it's important for people to hear and know that, you know, it, maybe you just need to try something different or you need to try something else. And it's not a one-stop shop. Right. Agreed. I, you know, I, it's kind of funny. I was, I was just talking to my daughter about some of this today. Um, and just about me specifically, because it was like, had I, had I taken the advice when I was 20 years old that I, that I give people now, <laughs> We would have made my life so much easier. Like you, you know, you, we right? have a very unique job. We have a very unique, and your situation of the Boston bombing, like you're there. You're, I get it. I, I get it. And when you have people that don't mm-hmm. understand or can't relate, like how do you get help from mm-hmm. somebody that can't relate to what you've seen or done? So it's that. Absolutely. Find somebody to talk to. Make a stupid joke yeah. that nobody gets. And then people look at you like, 
Oh, you're insensitive. That <laughs> yeah, person did this. They, yeah. they, they died. You know, they, yeah, I know. And now I, I, I can't have a beer with them. That's terrible. Like, Oh, it's funny. Not it's funny. Okay. But it's how we have to deal with stuff. And, Go ahead, man. I'm it's taking you over this conversation. No, no, it's it's good. It's all good stuff, man. And that's, I mean, that's one of the things too, where it is just finding the right person. And I know, um, you know, Boomer, James Boomer, home Boomer at MedFlight, when he was establishing the wing team, one of the things that he did was he looked at, you know, all the therapists that are available for like they, through the EAP program. Cause it, you know, it's hard to, like you said, if people don't see what we're seeing going through that stuff, for some people, it's hard to be like, well, how can I talk to this guy who has no concept of the stuff that we do? So he went, Boomer went through and like called all of these people and was like, hey, what's your experience? Like, what are you typically through? And it's like, like there's some, I, I'll get the numbers wrong, but it was like some crazy number that were on the list, like don't even practice anymore. And then there were like maybe three people that actually had like a military police or EMS background. And he's like, all right, these are the people. Like if we, if one of our guys gets jammed up, like, we're going to kind of push him in this direction. So it's just, it's a good resource and it's good. I'm, I feel very fortunate at MedPlay. Everyone's really supportive of that as all organizations should be. Dude, right on, man. I, I like hearing that. It's, it's definitely a bonus for people to have um, just to be able to call, make that quick call to back up to mm -hmm. you specifically getting into your running like that, that wanting to mm -hmm. run the wanting to go out. Was that, did you, did you get that? after you were able to talk to somebody or was that just kind of something that you worked through on your own as well as talking to somebody? It was just something that I kind of got figured out on my own. Uh, I wish someone had just told me to, to go do it. <laughs> it would have saved me a, a fair <laughs> bit of time, but <laughs> yeah. uh, no, it, it really, it's just like simple. And when I was writing my book, my book, it was just, it was an interesting thing when I was kind of going through the chronology of how stuff happened and cause I'd kept notes through all of it and journal and I find writing very therapeutic <laughs> and it it was as simple as I'm I'm in this country it looks beautiful I can I can get more out of this day if, if I go further and I'm going to get further by running and as soon as I started doing it it, it, it the switch flipped and it's interesting because in a lot of these stories or books it's usually like a, a build-up and in a way there was a build-up to this right but it really was this one moment where I'm like I know how I'm going to fix this. Nice. Nice. Uh, how long did that take you to do? You said it was in 2014. Uh, yeah. So my first marathon abroad was um, a trail race in Australia in May of 2015. And then Asia was my last continent. And I ran uh, the Everest marathon in Nepal in December of 2017 or November, November, 2017. So from the Boston, that's a great marathon. story too. That was... uh, well, hold on that before we get into yeah. that. So from the Boston, okay, bombing, yeah, yeah. It happened. You ran a year later, so the the bombing was fourteen. You ran fifteen, thirteen. No, Bo sorry. bombing was in thirteen. Thirteen. Uh, I ran I ran again, ran Boston again in fourteen, 14. and then it was like a year and year and a month later that I ran the first marathon abroad. So, and. So from really 14, right? Um, so when you ran mm -hmm. the Boston Marathon again, right? So now that mm -hmm. another year and a half, you have to really, it's like two and a half years trying to f work through it through yourself. And, and you said it earlier, but I'm going to emphasize yeah. it again. Like it's not a broken arm. Like 
it's it's not it, it doesn't take you oh six weeks and it's healed then you're good to go it's, it doesn't work like that and and i i want to emphasize that as well and i love the fact that you took mm -hmm. it to how can i do this on my own and that is what tricked triggered you to be like mm -hmm. got it dude i like that mm -hmm. man it's good man and the other thing too is it's not um you know you don't just have this increase in trajectory of healing upward with mental health too like it, it's peaks and valleys it's, you know your your bones are progressively healing or you know whatever pathology you choose right i guess orthopedics is the best example though that was, that was a shitty analogy i'm thinking about all these like complex medical cases I'm like oh, it's peaks and valleys all the time what am i talking about so an orthopedic <laughs> injury is you generally yeah. heal in a positive upflexion yeah, um, yeah. no with mental health, it, you have you have good days you have bad days but as long as you're moving generally in the right direction that that's what counts yeah. you got to celebrate small victories with that totally man thank you for sharing all that um all right everest nepal marathon funny story so i i go to nepal for this which is dumb right no one should run at altitude that was really it was just it's shitty like it's a bad you're thing supposed to, to climatize and uh, stuff man come on what the so 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 we did right to to an extent uh, so, we so, climatized. Yeah, I took a day. So, so to no, come on, man. So, so to run the race, right? Um, you have to. You had to go. It was like three weeks or a month early, and you're out hiking every day, and you're like you trekked up to base camp, and you're going all around some of the routes up there, and they're checking your pulse ox and your heart rate every night. And like, I was, I'm a pretty healthy guy, and I was like sat in the high 80s, just sitting down <laughs> at night having having dinner. And there might be like in the 70s, you're like, holy shit, like, that whole dissociation curve is a real thing, huh? But um, <clears throat> so the so I I met some awesome awesome people doing this. Some of like my best friends that I still talk to. Like I ended up because of this, I ended up living in Scotland for two years. It, my, just a, oh my a weird life, man. But That's so awesome. I, I became became. Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, we're whole night. We're, we're gonna get so far off topic. I worked in Scotland as a reindeer herder for two years because of this. What? I was just in the mountains working with. Yeah, I know. I know. Rescue. You're gonna be like, way off rescue. That's all right. That's all right. Everyone's right? gonna be like, this guy's full of shit. Uh, yeah. So on on topic. On topic. So <laughs> so I'm running on. So we go like three weeks early. I'm I'm getting really close to all these people, and as it got closer to the race, you think about yeah. I think there were maybe like 30, 30 people in the race. And there was another group of, uh, you know, Nepalese people that were running who smoked everyone else, but we're like by hours. So um, I, everyone's intense and they're eating together and it's all this stuff and people start getting sick. And it's like a couple of days before the race. And I'm thinking to myself, look, like I've spent, all this, I say all this time, you know, it was a three year period, but it was a lot of work, right? I was traveling all over the world. I'm on my yeah. last continent. I'm a, I'm 23. So I already have what it's going to look like on Instagram. You know, when I finished this race, I was such a shithead back then, man. I'm like, I know exactly how I'm going to caption this and what the picture is going to look like. Oh. And it's like, nothing is going to get in the way. I'm going to finish this race. I've come too far. I got to do it. So that's why I like to say like, this was 2017. I was social distancing way before it was cool. I should have patented that, man. I was isolating myself. I'm like, no one is getting near me. I'm eating meals by myself. I'm going to stay healthy. So with all these people, like, it was this nasty, nasty. It was probably like a norovirus or something. I don't think it was like any like weird, you know, native 
um, pathology or bacteria, but I think it was just like a neurovirus. It, everyone, it, it was all the textbook people were just like diarrhea and vomiting everywhere. Like no one could keep anything down. And then it sucks too because you're at altitude, so you're already physiologically deficient. So I'm like, I'm like one of my Irish buddies was just a puking in his running shoes the night before the race. And it was like, oh God, it was all it was carnage. So I, so I wait, I wake up and the race started like just full ever. I think the starting altitude are like 17,000 feet and you net run downhill for the, for most of it. Like, I think there's like 3000 feet of a gain, but you end up at 12,000. It was something like that. But so it was like negative four degrees out. You're in your, your parka and you're getting ready to start and I get going and everything feels good. I'm like, all right, we did it. Like I'm, all I have to do is get through the next 26 miles. I'd be drinking beers and I, I, I figured out how to remain healthy through all this. So I get to the halfway point and I was a huge, I still am a huge Himalaya Everest nerd. And I said, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get back here again. And I want to do some climbing and do some high peaks. And it's so cool to be near Mount Everest and the way that the route goes, this is like the last time that I'm going to get a good look at it before, you know, the race continues. So I turned around, I'm looking at the mountain and, and kind of like self-reflecting. Like, you know, it's pretty cool that I was able to, to get here and do it from where this all started with the marathon bombing. Kind of this nice little moment. And I was starting to get cold and I looked at, I saw this like cloud shadow coming over the mountain. And I said, shit, you know, I should probably kind of keep going because you're moving down to lower altitude. So, you know, you're always moving towards a more safe area. So when I, I turned around, that cloud shadow didn't go away. It was... Um, I still like saw it in my eyes. What the hell is going on with this? And um, I was starting to lose some of my vision in my eyes. Like, oh my God. I'm like, that's, you know, that's, that's not good. So <laughs> like, you know, better, better keep going. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> such an idiot, man. So I, I kept, I kept running and um, then I like, and then the, the GI bug started to hit. I was shitting my pants and I'm puking oh, off the side of this no. cliff and, I'm like, oh God. I'm like, so uh, the, my visual field is just continually decreasing. And I just like trip on this rock and take this header like down, like slide and like rip my tights up. I'm like, God, I'm in, I'm in rough shape here. And I still had eight miles left. Like, I just got to try to keep pushing. But you know, your stomach, you're in any like, not even like the, this, but in even any long distance endurance event, you're, it's hard to like kind of keep your GI motility and, and make yourself keep eating and drinking. But I could not keep anything down and your caloric intake needs to be so much higher you're getting dehydrated faster because how cold it is and because of the altitude and i can't put anything in my stomach so i start getting to i think i got to like mile 23 or so yeah. i'm like i just have to do a 5k i'm like i just have to and i'm, I'm swerving man you, you would have thought i was shit-faced trying to make it through these trails i couldn't see anything i'm puking everywhere and it, it's just like the opposite of my Instagram moment that I figured out, right? So, so suddenly, I'm like, I have to take a shit. Like all that my brain could think about, I'm like, I need to stop and take a shit right now. Like it is the most important thing in my life. And I'm trying to look for a place to go, and I'm on this path, and the path is like wiggling all over the place. I'm starting to hallucinate, right? So. I, I see like bushes moving across the path in front of me and I see this tree and I go to lean on it. So 
I'm like, oh God. I'm like, I'm trying to be so analytical about how I'm going to do this. I'm like, it, like in my current state, it's going to take a lot of effort to take a shit. It's like when you're like doing stuff and like in the winter and you're in Alpine and you're like very thoughtful and methodical about like what you open first and how you do stuff. So I'm like, all right, well, I need to do this first. Uh, and I'm like, I'm not making any sense. Right. So I like pull my tights down. I go to lean on this tree, fall right over. There's no tree there. The, the, my brain made it up. So I'm just laying there on the ground tights around my ankles and i just fucking shit all over myself right oh and my God, i am terrible. it was awful it was awful so i'm just laying there and it's like starting to get cold i feel so weak i like, couldn't go and the part that scared me was i was starting to get really tired like i was, I was really starting to tire out i was like starting to close my eyes a little bit and it was literally man i just thought about how ashamed my dad would be if I died in a pile of my own shit with tights. Like my dad, my dad doesn't run right. He's like, my fucking kid was wearing running tights and shit all over and he died. <laughs> so, I'm like, I gotta get up. I'm like, I gotta at least like, put my pants back on if this, if this is, you know, lights out. So, <laughs> so I get my tights on and I start, oh, God. I start like wob- so doing the wobble. And these, uh, these Irish guys who I became really, really good friends with throughout the week, I see them running along and they were behind me. And they were, they were kind of like looking at me and I said, oh, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I didn't answer him. That's when they knew that I was pretty bitched up. And um, they they came and they stopped, you know, whatever, sacrificed, you know, how fast ever their time was going to be and got under my arms and started walking me and telling me jokes and kind of keep me awake and give, give me a hard time. And, you know, the Irish are such good people, man. <laughs> Uh, and they, they walked me through to the finish line that, you know, that last, you know, three kilometers. And, um, so I, I keep this picture on my nightstand because it's so important to me about what this whole journey meant and what this was all about starting from the Boston marathon, because it started out that I was having a really hard time struggling with mental health. And then I figured out how to fix it by running in weird, obscure places and it, and it, I thought it was all about the races and traveling around the world and, and do, doing the thing. And it wasn't really about that. Because what I saw, talked about earlier was that bombing was really my first global view of how negative things are. And that's what captures people's attention is, you know, this is happening over here. This is happening over there. There's all these terrible things happening because the media loves the negativity and it's right. headline grabbing. Right. So running got me out the door and it got me on all these adventures. But when I crossed the finish line with these guys that I had known for like three, four weeks who sacrificed their day to carry, you know, my, my shit covered tights across, <laughs> across this finish line, it, it wasn't about the right. It was about all of these people that I met from all over the world of all different cultures and religions and beliefs and ideas that I would have never have met if I didn't step out my front door to begin with. And they showed me that people will be kind when they're given the opportunity to do so. And it, and it meant so much to me. And I'm like, there it is, man. There, that's, that's what this is all about. And, the, you know, the Irish guys, man, like I saw them I, when I was lived in Scotland, I saw them all the time, but they're always coming over to America. We're going over there. We just, we're, we're going to a wedding together coming up soon. Like oh, they're be- best, awesome. some of my best friends. So yeah. it's, it's huge. Love it. Wow. Wow. Bobby, that's freaking awesome, man. What it's kind of insane, but totally cool, and I dig it. I like it a lot. All right. <laughs> um, it, you know, I'm actually going to circle in to like like rescue in itself because 
like what you just said is people are willing to go above and beyond to help those in need. That's what we do. That's, that's the rescue community all the way around. And you've been doing it since really you were 15 years old. And like you said, I mean, you're letting people are letting people into their homes from the Boston bombing. And now you got two guys that you've met only for a couple of weeks that are sacrificing their time to run you across the finish line of your last marathon and your last continent. Freaking mm-hmm. sick, dude. It's good. And it's, uh, I always try to tell these stories because it's just, it's important for people to hear. Like there's a lot of good in the world, man. There's a lot, a lot of good. And uh, sometimes you just have to work a little bit harder to find it. You got to seek it out. Dude, I agree with you. Heck yeah. Ah, Bobby, this has been awesome, man. Thank you for sharing this. All right, Bobby. So, man, I'll tell you what, Bobby. I got one question and just kind of listen to this. I love the DePaul story. That's amazing. All seven continents, marathons in every one of them. Do you have a favorite place you ran a marathon? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. No one ever asked me that. Oh, well, that's weird. Well, I'm happy to be the first guy to do that. I'm I'm, I'm joking, man. Come on. That's a softball. Uh, Jeez. Oh, man. Nope. (laughs) All right. You know what? No, screw that. I'm I'm, I'm changing. I'm changing. What's the worst okay. marathon you remember? What's the one you're like, hell no, I'm never doing that one again. All right, let's go to that one. That's the first. No one's asked me that one. All oh. right, let's start with that one then. Wor- wor- worst one, and I apologize to anyone from Connecticut who takes uh, offense to this. There's this race in this ultra marathon in Connecticut called the Trap Rock 50K. And it's just a, an awful race. Like the, like, it's not like usually when races are hard, you're usually getting some bang for your buck. Like we're especially like running long races in the whites up here. Like they're hard. It's the hard whites would be the white mountains. Got to throw The white mountains. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's my, that's my local lingo. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what you're talking um, about. <laughs> the white mountains in New Hampshire, st- stunningly beautiful. Right. Um, it, but you're working hard up there, but you got beautiful views. So right? you end up on awesome ridgelines, stuff like that. But you're working like just as hard at this race in Connecticut and you're just in the trees. Like you're maybe like your biggest climb is like 400 feet, but you're doing that like a thousand times and you're just tripping over roots and it's in the springtime. And I don't think anyone was having fun. You're just like, it was just a mess. Like it was terrible. Every year when I get the like remind, like, like, Hey, registration opens soon. I always go to, I just got it the other day. And you're like, there's like a cyber Monday deal. And I'm like, who the fuck would be doing this? <laughs> Maybe I'll sign you up for it. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah great. But, yeah. I'm like, I, I will never unsubscribe from that email list. Cause it will always remind me that things can be worse. <laughs> you know, there's people that are actually going to find that Awful. just to see if it's literally the worst run that they could ever do. I just, I know I'm sure there's a word. I just, I don't know. They're, they're, this is probably going to get back to their race director and he's going to get back and he's like, what the hell? Man? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, why are you, why are you picking on this obscure race in Connecticut? <laughs> Jason Quinn asked me this question and put me on the spot. God, that Quinn, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. All right, now let's go to the greatest. What's your favorite? What's your favorite? This awesome 50 miler in Patagonia in Chile. And it was just the whole race from start to finish. And it was a point to point. Like a lot of ultras are like loops or out and backs. 
it was just a point to point 50 miles of the most epic amazing terrain and scenery like it was just so cool and there were like people from all over the world doing that so you're mixing it up with all sorts of cool people and i did it with one of my friends from college too and uh it was just an awesome awesome race i had a great time there that's one of the few places that uh like i always try like we're we're pretty limited with the time that you get on this planet so you're always trying to go to new places i'd go back to i've been to patagonia twice now and i would just keep going back it's so epic love it love it all right so you have your your best and your worst uh both recorded here just throwing that out there we got it boom there you go i know i'm, I'm sorry to the poor man in connecticut i don't <laughs> Please do your own research. Maybe you'll like it. I don't know. But I thought it sucked, man. It's terrible. I appreciate the honesty. All right. Maybe you know what? Maybe they can hang little banners along the trail, make it a little more interesting. Or put mirrors along the Dude, trail. I, so you're looking at yourself, you're like, oh, I look like shit right now. But I'll tell you what, I love when people like embrace stuff like that. Like I just did a um an ultra in New Boston, New Hampshire a couple weeks ago. It's called the hamster wheel. And it's called that because it's a four mile loop that you just do as many times as you can. And like, there's a six hour, a 12 hour, a 24 hour and a 30 hour. And um, it's called, their slogan is the dumbest race in New Hampshire. And it was all like, I had a blast. Like it's fun, it was fun, you know, but, but I'm sure a lot of maybe people from Connecticut be like that fucking stupid hamster reel race. <laughs> I don't know. Ultra running is just stupid, man. I don't know why people do it. I don't know why I do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm doing my first hundred miler next year. Oh, you are? Hey, good for started, you. Yeah, Ooh, man. Good luck. I was, they, was talking to my fiance about it the other day. I'm like, I don't know why, like this dichotomy of numbers had me hung up, but I was like, I'm like you get to seventy miles, you still have another thirty to do. Like, that's, that's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so far. Like, it's a long way. It's thirty miles mm-hmm. more. Hundred mm-hmm. miles total gonna be a long day but i got got a good support crew a good team so it'll be fun. all right you know what i'll i'll come in i'll high five you at the start line and then i'll call you later okay sounds good because i know I i'll see you, you. The start. yeah i you know what i know i'll see you at the start line finish line yeah, maybe yeah. oh that's bullshit you're gonna be there i you know what i'll be there okay <laughs> see, you, see oh you there you, you can be the beer guy yeah absolutely We'll have a Sam, a Sam's Adams. Sam Adams, buddy. Yeah, we'll grab one of those. Oh, that's funny. All right, so I, I'm very good. One of their change. IPAs now, man, Wicked Hazy. They're, yeah. they're one of the new Sam Adams IPAs, Wicked Hazy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's cool. They're really cheap. They're like they're like $16 at Fenway. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wicked cheap. Wicked cheap. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You you might actually lose listeners from this podcast, man. <laughs> There's a possibility. There is always that possibility. <laughs> you know, if they're still here with us, then, then they're going to enjoy the next part of the stories because I'm going to ask about it. You see, we talked about it earlier. Haiti. You went mm-hmm. to Haiti. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to be that time because we've hit our bingo. We'll be relaunching for part two of this episode after we refuel. We'll see you soon. Go. Now, it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. 
I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at The Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. Breeze Eastern. For over 80 years, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured battle-proven aerial rescue hoists, winches, and cargo hooks. Each product is carefully crafted to support demanding mission scenarios, ensuring the job gets done safely and efficiently. Visit them today at www.breeze-eastern.com. My name's Rotoblade. They call me Rota for short. And I have a rescue story for you. So let me just lay here, enjoy this for a minute, and then I'll tell you all about it. Oh, yeah.